Well, I don't know about you, but I love surprise endings. You ever read a short story or a novel that just shocked you with an unexpected conclusion? I love that. In fact, the most famous person for writing stories like this was a guy named William Sidney Porter. Now, you may not remember that name, but his pen name is memorable. Uh, he was known as O. Henry. And he wrote hundreds of short stories. Many of them had this unexpected ending to them that would surprise readers. By the way, O. Henry actually had a Houston connection. In 1895, he moved here from Austin, Texas, and uh, he got hired by the Houston Post, which is the newspaper then, uh, at, at a princely salary of $25 a month. Now, of course, there are also uh, movies with great surprise endings. Just on Friday of this week, I, I looked on cable TV and they had a showing of the movie The Sixth Sense. Remember that movie from 1999, uh, nominated for the Academy Award, and it had this special surprise ending to it. But one of my favorite surprise endings was actually written thousands of years ago by King David. It caps the 29th Psalm, which extols the power of God before giving a twist at the end that is incredibly relevant to you and to me right here in the 21st century. See, David was trying to creatively capture the extent of God's incredible strength. And so he hearkened back to his days as a shepherd when he would watch these awesome storms roll in off the Mediterranean Sea with frightening intensity. This is what he writes in this psalm, starting at verse 3. He said, The voice of the Lord is over the waters. In other words, this is a storm that's roaring in from the Mediterranean. The God of glory, he said, thunders. The Lord thunders over the mighty waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. Do you know how big the cedars in Lebanon can get? They can get to be 30 feet in diameter and as high as a 12-story building. But one whisper from God turns it all into kindling. I mean, that's powerful. And then he goes on. He says, he makes Lebanon skip like a calf, Syrian like a young wild ox. See, Syrian is a 9,000-foot mountain. In other words, God's voice is like a mighty earthquake that makes the plains and the mountains shake and quiver and undulate and dance. Then he goes on, he says, the voice of the Lord strikes with flashes of lightning. I mean, think about how incredible uh, the power is of lightning. We have 40 million lightning bolts that strike in the United States each year. And each one of them, in a fraction of a second, discharges 100 million volts of electricity and 13,000 million horsepower at a temperature five times hotter than the surface of the sun. And yet here, David is saying, a single utterance from the lips of the Lord is more potent than all of the lightning and all of the uh, 1,800 thunderstorms that are going on right now around the planet. He goes on, he says, the voice of the Lord shakes the desert. The Lord shakes the desert of Kadesh. 
Kadesh is in the south. Syrian is in the north. So what this means is that God's tremendous power flows all through the land. No one can escape it. And he says, the voice of the Lord twists the oaks and strips the forest bare. Do you remember the photographs of what happened after Mount St. Helens blew up back in 1980? The explosive force was equal to 500 atomic bombs. And giant trees were toppled like matchsticks. And and the bark was stripped off of them over 230 square miles. Enough lumber to build 300,000 houses. And yet that's child's play compared to the power of God. It would take only a murmur from God to flatten the entire 815 million acres of the Amazon rainforest. And so what's our response to this incredible power of God? David said, and in his temple, all cry glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord is enthroned as king forever. In other words, what other reaction can we have but to worship him for being such a breathtakingly, awesomely powerful God who richly deserves to reign over his creation? But then, David's poem takes a critically important turn with a surprise ending. I mean, you would think that a being with that kind of power, with that kind of strength, would hoard his power and use it to browbeat his creation. As the old saying goes, power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Now, God is absolutely powerful, but surprisingly, his power does not corrupt him. In fact, it's quite the opposite. The psalm ends with these unexpected words. The Lord gives strength to his people. The Lord blesses his people with peace. In other words, God isn't drunk on power like some earthly king would be. He doesn't hoard it. Instead, he's an empowering deity who offers to share his strength with you and with me. And that's a good thing. Because it means that we can find peace when we're panicky, and endurance when we're empty, and courage when we're cowardly. 2 Timothy 1 verse 7 says, For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, love, and self-discipline. I mean, who doesn't need that kind of power in their life? Who wouldn't want to be on the receiving end of God's generous offer to infuse us with his strength? Now, there are lots of areas where we need this, but I'm going to focus on three of those areas today. First, God can give us power to cope with pain in our life. God can give us power to cope with pain in our life. In other words, he can strengthen us through times of hardship that we simply cannot go through on our own. I remember several years ago, it was a Saturday morning, and I was making a sandwich for lunch in the kitchen of my house, and the phone rang. And the caller identified himself as a physician in an emergency room. And he said, you have a friend named Bob? I said, yeah. He said, Bob is here. He needs to talk with you. And my first reaction is, oh, man, I know how intense Bob is. He's probably had a heart attack. He's probably in the hospital. He wants to talk to me. 
And, and so the doctor handed the phone to Bob, but what came through that receiver did not sound human. It was a wail. It, 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 was, it was a heart-rending, um, uh, anguished cry. And I said, Bob, Bob, settle down. What's going on? And, and, and it took a few minutes for him to, to gather himself and, and to be able to speak. And finally he said, Lee, it's my daughter. She's been hit by a drunk driver, and they're telling me that she's brain dead. Lee, would you come to the hospital right away? And so I got in the car, and I drove to the hospital. And I went up to the room, and there was his teenage daughter. The side of her head was shaved, which they did for the brain surgery, the emergency brain surgery that she had undergone. Her eyes were swollen shut. Her face was bruised and battered. And there was a machine that was breathing for her. And so I took Bob's hand, and I took her hand. And I prayed for them. But as I prayed for them, I couldn't help but remember when my own daughter was fighting for her life right after she was born. But I was an atheist at the time, and I didn't have the power, and I didn't have the strength of God in my life. And I remembered that moment of fear and intimidation and uncertainty and horror that I felt not knowing God in the moment of that tragedy in our life. Can I tell you something that you maybe don't want to hear? The time is going to come when you are going to face a tragedy like Bob did. Maybe not the same kind of tragedy, but the chance is that you're going to experience some sort of heartbreak that comes from a loss that is too painful to bear. You're not immune from that, and I'm not immune from that. I mean, Jesus was honest about this. You know, there are Eastern religions that say, oh, no, no, pain and suffering, that's just maya. It's an illusion. And Jesus said, no, 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 it's very real. Jesus said in John 16, these things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have tribulation. But, he said, take courage. I have overcome the world. What was he saying? He was saying, we live in a world that is corroded and corrupted by sin. And as a result, we have suffering, we have pain, we have tragedy, we have heartbreak. But in that same verse, Jesus is saying, I can offer you my strength. I can offer you the two very things that you need the most in the midst of a tragedy. I can give you peace for the present and courage for the future. And where do they come from? Where do they come from? They come from a God who says, I will share my strength and my power with you. You know, today, if you were several years downstream to sit down with my friend Bob, he would tell you that the death of his daughter was the deepest and darkest desert that he has ever trudged through in this life. But he would also tell you in no uncertain terms that if God had not empowered him, if God had not given him the strength to cope with this, he never would have made it out the other side, not in one piece. Friends, when that day comes, when tragedy strikes in your life, 
Where are you going to get God's strength? How are you going to get it? That's really the issue, isn't it? God is powerful, and we all know that. How do I access his strength? Well, hang on to that thought. In a few moments, I'm going to explain in great detail how we can access God's power in times of tragedy. But I want to go on first to my second point, which is this. God can give us power to resist temptation. God can give us power to resist temptation. Temptations lure us every single day. I saw a bumper sticker once that said, lead me not into temptation. I'm perfectly capable of finding it on my own. The famous Christian writer C.S. Lewis said, some people have the silly idea that good folks don't know what temptation means. He said, this is an obvious lie. He said, only those who try to resist temptation really know how strong that it could be. Temptations are those unethical or immoral shortcuts that inevitably lead us down a dead-end road. I mean, should I shade the truth on my resume? Nobody ever really checks those out, right? Should I make a move at that new employee at work? I mean, if, if I do it right, my spouse will never find out. Should I visit that X-rated website? I mean, I'm an adult, right? Should I take credit for my assistant's ideas? I mean, if I do that right, I'll get all the credit and nobody will ever find out. Should I report my side income to the IRS? They don't have any real way of tracking that stuff, do they? I mean, should I go way out on the end of an already shaky financial limb and buy that new Ferrari? I deserve some fun, don't I? I mean, before I was a Christian, I had two criteria to determine which temptations I would indulge in. First, how much pleasure would it bring me? And second, would I get caught? And as a result, I ended up giving in to a lot of short-term pleasures that inevitably yielded long-term headaches. Well, after I became a follower of Christ, I found that temptations didn't stop. And to make matters worse, my initial viewpoint of God's attitude toward temptations was, was all messed up. I, I used to picture God as if he had a choke collar around my neck. You know, when I was growing up, I had this giant dog named Nick. Love that dog. But he was strong. And so for me to be able to walk him as a kid, I had a choke collar around him. And when he would see that cute little poodle down the block that he wanted to go after, I would give that choke uh, leash a, 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 a yank, and I'd get him back into line. And that's how I pictured God with me. I pictured him holding my leash, just daring me to succumb to a temptation so he could angrily jerk me back by the neck. So I felt intimidated, and I felt alone. But then I read the Bible, and I found that that's not God's attitude. He isn't arbitrarily trying to spoil our fun. He lovingly wants to protect us from the emotional and the physical and the relational and the spiritual downsides that come when we indulge ourselves in temptations. Actually, he's in our corner. Hebrews 4, verse 15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way 
just as we are, yet he did not sin. I mean, it's always easier to deal with someone uh, and, and talk with someone when you're wrestling with temptations to talk with someone who's been there themselves. So now when I talk about uh, to Jesus in prayer, when I talk to him about the pressures that I feel to compromise my morality or to take an ethical shortcut, I don't imagine him saying, oh, kind of shame on you for even considering this. Instead, I picture him saying, I know, I know, I know. Believe me, I understand. So here, let me help you. And he does help. Paul assures us in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13, God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. And when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. But again, the big question is how? How, practically speaking, do we access this strength of God when we're facing temptations? Hold on for just a minute, so I'm going to come to that shortly. But I want to first talk about a third area where God can empower us. Not only can God help us avoid doing what we shouldn't do, but the flip side of that is God can give us the power to do what we should do. That's the third, third area I want to talk about. So if you've read the Bible, you know it contains a lot of teaching about how we should behave as followers of Jesus if we want to be men and women of godly character. But I'll be the first to raise my hand and to say, you know, without God's help, I, I just can't do this stuff. I mean, serve others? Come on, I'd much rather be on the receiving end of being served. Be humble? Well, everybody knows that you got to be your biggest cheerleader these days. Be generous? Oh, my natural inclination is, is to hoard my possessions. Be patient? Come on, have you ever driven the freeway into Houston at rush hour? You want me to be patient? Or forgive those who've hurt me? Hey, I'm from Chicago where the informal motto is, don't get mad, get even. You see, as Christians, our objective, according to Galatians 4, verse 19, should be that Christ is formed in us. That involves going down an often arduous path of submission, growth, and maturity that, frankly, I simply can't do on my own. I need God's power if I'm going to make progress. But again, that comes down to the question of, okay, how? How can I get that power in my life, to live a godly life. Well, we come to that point. Let's talk very practically about how we can access the power of God in our lives. It isn't about pushing the right buttons. It isn't about chanting the right words. But there are biblical steps that we can take to uh, access this power of God. And so to summarize these steps, I use five words that begin with the letter A. That way, they can be easy to remember. So the first step is this. Admit, admit that you're weak without God. Just admit it. I mean, my first reaction in a crisis is to try to get through it by myself because you don't want to lean on somebody else. But here's the thing. We cannot be filled with the power of God until we first empty ourselves of the pretense that we can get by on our own. 
Do you get that? We cannot be filled with the power of God until we first empty ourselves of the pretense that we can get by on our own. We need to admit we can't get through this tragedy. We can't resist this temptation. We can't mold our own character without God's outside intervention. I mean, so often in Scripture, from Moses to the Apostle Paul, we see the same pattern, that people humbly admit their weakness, and then God fills them with his power. In fact, Paul said this in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9. He said, but the Lord said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. I mean, the longer that we resist um, the obvious, which is that we're ultimately powerless by ourselves, the longer we resist that obvious truth, the deeper we sink into the mire. I mean, we can't reach out and cling to God's strength if we're too busy straining to clutch our own self-sufficiency. Famous writer wrote this many years ago. He said, nothing so furthers our prayer life as the feeling of our own helplessness. It is only when we are helpless that we really open our hearts to God. And then here's the second step. Affirm God's power and his presence. I mean, once we come face to face with the reality that uh, we're weak in dealing with this situation, we need to remind ourselves that we follow an all-powerful God who all throughout history has a track record of infusing his followers with strength. First Chronicles 16, verses 11 and 12 say this. Look to the Lord and his strength. Seek his face always. Remember the wonders he has done, his miracles and the judgments he pronounced. In other words, dwell on how God empowered Moses, how he strengthened David, how he undergirded Daniel, how he emboldened Peter, and how he supported Paul. Remember how time after time he has proven himself to be trustworthy. And then in addition to acknowledging God's power, we should affirm his willingness to be present in our lives. I remember many years ago, um, back in the 80s, when my daughter was in high school, she was part of a musical uh, that was based on the song by Bette Midler called From a Distance. Do you remember that song? It's a famous song back from the 80s. And one of the lines from that song says, God is watching us from a distance. And I remember watching this play that was going on and hearing that lyric, and I wanted to stand up and shout, that's not true. But Allison, very grateful I didn't do that. <laughs> but it's, it is not true. It is not true. God does not see us from a distance. God is here. He is present. He is active in our lives. He is accessible to us. Theologically, we say that God is both transcendent, that means above all of his creation, and at the same time, he is imminent, which means he is close to us. He is involved with us. Joshua 1, verse 9 says, Be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged. 
for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Our confidence, our courage, our strength are bolstered when we remember that the same God who has empowered people through the ages will be present in our life today in the midst of our tragedy, in the midst of our temptations, in the midst of our quest to be godly men and women. The next step is to align, to align yourself with God's will. Remember that old country song with the refrain, um, looking for love in all the wrong places? Well, the truth is sometimes we're looking for God's strength for all the wrong reasons. But God's power is not like some electrical outlet that you can just plug into for any reason that you want. Jesus said this in John 15, verse 5. He said, I am the vine, you are the branches. In other words, we need to be intimately connected with God and his purposes in our life. And then he says, if you remain in me and I in you, then you will bear much fruit. In other words, when we're working in harmony with God, then he's willing to give us the power we need to fulfill the purpose he has set forth for each of us. And then the verse concludes with this stark reminder, apart from me, you can do nothing. In other words, when we're independently pursuing our own agenda, we shouldn't necessarily expect God is going to contribute to it or God is going to empower us for our own agenda. I mean, think about it. It wouldn't make sense for God to supernaturally renew our strength so we can pursue a pet project that runs contrary to his own plan for our life. We need to make sure we're traveling down the road that he wants us to travel. I mean, look at it this way. If he wants the best for us, why wouldn't we want to walk down the road in sync with what he wants for our life? Aligning ourselves with God's will begins when we initially put our trust in Jesus as our forgiver and as our leader. And then it's an ongoing process as we continue to grow over the years in our relationship with him and we increasingly submit to the agenda that he has for our lives. As we mature in our faith, we become more and more adept at discerning his will for our life. We grow familiar, the Bible says, with his voice. We immerse ourselves in his book and consistently test everything against it. We receive guidance from the Holy Spirit. We seek wise counsel from other Christians. And we develop confidence that as we head in God's direction, when we're going the right way, he is available to encourage us and to empower us. And then next, after these steps, next take the step, ask God, ask God for the power that you need. I remember when I was in high school, my brother Ray bought a brand new Chevrolet Corvette. It was 1968 model. If you know anything about cars, you know that 1968 was a, was a, a huge year for the Corvette, completely changed the design of the car. It was awesome. And of course, I'm 16 years old, I'm his brother, and I want nothing more than to borrow that Corvette to go pick up Leslie and impress her on a date. 
But I was too intimidated to just come out and ask my brother to use his car. So I would beat around the bush. I would say, hey, you know, so the car is just sitting there in the driveway. It's kind of, it looks kind of lonely. You know, I, it's going to sit there all night. I mean, it just looks like it needs some exercise, to be honest. I mean, it doesn't look right, a Corvette sitting there stationary. I mean, shouldn't it be out running on the highway? And I'd go on and on like that. And finally, my brother would look at me and say, Lee, if you want to borrow my car, just come out and ask for it. And so I did. And in one of the dumbest things he could ever do, he said yes. And so here I am, 16 years old, driving this 400-horsepower Corvette. Um, thank God it turned out all right. But uh, I, I wouldn't have given my 16-year-old brother permission, but my brother did for me. But my point is, I had to come out and ask him for it. And so often, when we desperately need God's intervention in our life, we don't come out and ask him. We beat around the bush. And yet James 4, verse 2 says, you do not have because you do not ask God. We need to come right out and express the desire of our heart to God. Now, having admitted our inability to handle the matter ourselves, having affirmed God's power and presence in our life, having aligned ourselves with uh, God by wanting what he wants for our life, we should just forthrightly, specifically ask him for the power to pursue the agenda that he has for us. And sometimes when I go through those steps, man, I feel empowered by God. I feel uh, full of courage and boldness. But you know what? The truth is, often I don't. Often I don't. I mean, there are times I go through those four steps, I don't feel any different. I still feel scared. I still feel weak. Has that ever happened to you? What do you do when that takes place? Well, you go to the fifth step, which is nevertheless act out of obedience to God. Nevertheless act out of obedience to God. Years ago, a colleague of mine pointed out to me a pattern in Scripture. Listen to this. He said, even when we don't feel empowered, if we nevertheless take action by obediently proceeding down the road that God wants us to walk, he will give us power as power is needed. A great illustration of this is what happened in Luke chapter 17, when there were 10 lepers who called out from a distance to Jesus and said, Jesus, heal us. And Jesus said to them, go, show yourselves to the priest, which would confirm that they had been healed. But they still had leprosy. <laughs> and, and so they're probably very confused at that moment. Wait a minute, we're supposed to go show ourselves to the priest, but we still have leprosy. And yet, in faith, they followed the path that Jesus had set out for them, and they headed down the road to the priests. And Luke 17, verse 14 says, and as they went, in other words, as they acted in obedience, they were cleansed. In other words, Jesus healed them along the way. And this is what happened in, essentially in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus, at that point, on the... Um, 
verge of being crucified, this horrific death to pay for the sins of the world, is feeling uh, anxiety over this. He's, he's fearful. He's feeling weak. And he goes in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's praying. And in that prayer, he made sure that he was aligned with the path that God wanted him to take. And so he obediently walked out of the garden and into the arms of those who would kill him. And God gave him the strength that he needed along the way to endure the whipping, to endure the crucifixion, to pay for your sins and to pay for mine. And so when you and I walk down the road in obedience to God, even when we're not feeling empowered, what we're demonstrating is faith. I mean, faith isn't just believing something. Faith is belief plus behavior. It's believing something and taking action in furtherance of those beliefs. Someone wants to find faith as belief gone courageous. Hebrews 11, verse 6, puts it this way. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. And yet the flip side of that is true too. With faith, and that is by being obedient and trusting God to come through for us, even when we don't feel empowered, we receive power as power is needed. I've seen that in my own life demonstrated time after time. I remember several years ago, I got a phone call one day from a woman. She said, you don't know me, uh, but I'm Jewish. I said, okay, that's fine. She said, well, yeah, but I read your book, The Case for Christ, and, and uh, it convinced me that Jesus is the Messiah, so I've received Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I've become a Christian. I said, that's awesome. She said, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm real excited about it, but I'm wondering, would you and your friend Mark Middleberg be willing to come over to my house and share Jesus with my boyfriend? And I said, well, of course we would. She said, well, you need to know a couple of things. I said, what? She said, well, first of all, he's a Muslim. And I said, that's all right. I love Muslims. That's, that's fine. She said, well, you need to know something else. I said, what? She said, well, he's kind of famous. I said, well, who is he? I said, well, she said, um, he's Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. And by the way, he, he's not too happy with people who try to proselytize him. Well, now, you got to understand something about me. I am a huge NBA fan. I love professional basketball. And when I lived in Chicago, it was during the Michael Jordan era, I was a huge Chicago Bulls fan. And then I moved to Los Angeles, and it was during the Kobe Bryant era, and I became a huge Lakers fan. And now I live here in Houston, and I'm here during the James Harden era, and I'm a huge Rockets fan. And of course, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is arguably the greatest basketball player who ever played the game. And he is the number one scorer in the history of the NBA. Number one of the entire history of the NBA. He has a record of six MVP trophies, six championship rings. He's a smart guy. He reads the Quran in the original Arabic. He's a historian. He's written books about history. And, and, and so... Mark and I show up uh, for lunch at the home of his girlfriend to have this meeting. And we're, we're, we're standing there on the porch, and we're very nervous. Uh, you know, I mean, I'm feeling intimidated. First of all, the guy is seven foot two. 
That's intimidating, first of all. Second of all, Mark and I are knowledgeable about Islam, but we're not scholars on Islam. And we know that Kareem is very knowledgeable about it, obviously. So we weren't feeling hugely confident that we could have a meaningful conversation with him about Islam. Um, And sometimes, you know, the bigger the opportunity, the stronger are the forces that want to hold you back. And so there we were on the porch, And what did we do? Well, we prayed. We admitted our feelings of weakness. We affirmed God's power and presence to guide us. We knew we were aligned with the will of God because 2 Peter 3 verse 9 says the Lord wants everyone to come to repentance. And we asked God, give us strength and power to make a difference in this conversation. But you know what? We didn't feel any more confident after, those, after that prayer. I wish, we, I wish I could say we felt infused with God's strength and boldness and confidence. Honestly, I still felt intimidated. But we decided to take that fifth step. We decided to act. And so I reached up and I rang the doorbell. And guess what? God gave us power as power was needed. And we had a wonderful afternoon talking about Jesus with Kareem and his girlfriend. And we built a little bit of a friendship. Kareem ended up later coming over to my house. We cooked steaks together. We had long conversations about Islam and about Christianity. Um, Mark got together with him another time as well. And and, uh, I think we really were able to Uh, share Jesus in a winsome way uh, with a person of great renown. But you know what? We didn't feel equipped when we went into that house. It was only when we decided to obediently walk in faith that God brought the strength into our life. And so if you need God's power in your life, can I just make a suggestion? Take action. Take action. If you're overwhelmed by a personal tragedy, there is a button right now that you can click on your computer so you can have a live conversation and pray with one of our pastors. Do it right now. Act. Even though you feel um, scared and hurt and intimidated in the midst of this tragedy in your life, reach out. Click that button. If you're wrestling with temptation, you know, and, and, and those Um, adult websites beckon you on your computer. Download a program that will block them so you can't access them anymore. Uh, If you're in an illicit relationship, pick up the phone and call the other person and say, look, I can no longer do this. I need to follow Christ and his teachings in my life. If your character shortcomings are um, hurting you from uh, fully maturing in your faith in Christ, then pick up the phone and call a Christian friend and say, look, I'm really um, wrestling with these biblical teachings about patience or about generosity or whatever it is, about forgiveness. Would you hold me accountable? Would you help me grow in this area of my life? That's why small groups here at the church are, are so important. And you can expect God will give you strength along the way. I remember years ago, I had a conversation with a man who had become known, he was famous in the Christian world, um, under the name of Brother Andrew. 
Brother Andrew. His nickname was God Smuggler. Because what Brother Andrew would do is he would uh, smuggle millions of Bibles into countries that were closed to the Word of God. This was during the Cold War um, when communist countries would block the dissemination of the Word of God to their people. And so Brother Andrew's mission, as he discerned it from God, was to get Bibles into these countries. And, and so I asked him, well, how did you do that? If, if the borders are closed to Bibles, how did you get these Bibles in the countries? And, and he said to me, Lee, he said, you know, once I sensed that God was leading me to bring Christian materials into a nation, I would take concrete action in obedience. And he said, even when the door of entry seemed closed, Somehow, you know, I would drive toward that border and somehow, in some way, God would enable me to get through with these Bibles. Sometimes the, the guards would literally open his trunk and see these Bibles and just close the trunk and say, okay, go ahead, go in. I don't know if God blinded them to what was there or if they were secret believers. I don't know. But Andrew said, I would just, in obedience, drive toward the border and God would give me the power along the way to get in. This is the way he expressed it. I think this is so good. Hang on to this if you hang on to nothing else. He said, the door in our life may seem closed, but it's only closed in the way a supermarket door is closed. He said, it stays shut when you remain at a distance. But as you deliberately move toward it, a magic eye above it sees you coming and the door opens. He said, God is waiting for us to walk forward in obedience so that he can open the door for us to serve him. I mean, what you'll find is when you demonstrate faith by taking specific steps of obedience to God, he is more than willing to intervene supernaturally in your life. And through it all, hang on to the words of King David in Psalm 37, where he said, Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he will do it. And he will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your judgment as the noonday. Let me pray for you. Father, you know we're going through a tumultuous time in our nation and in our world. And there are probably people who are watching right now who are suffering because of the pandemic that's been going on. Maybe they've had loved ones who are hospitalized or have even died as a result. A lot of people facing financial turmoil. Their businesses are unable to function. Their bank accounts are drained. They're fearful, they're intimidated, they're afraid. And I pray by the power of your Holy Spirit that as they walk through these five steps, that you will give them power as power is needed for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Hey church, thanks for listening to the Woodlands Church with Carrie Shook podcast. By listening, we hope that you're encouraged wherever you are. If you haven't already, we'd love for you to subscribe to our podcast so that you can get the latest messages each week. For more information on Woodlands Church, check out the description for a link to our website and how to connect with us. We hope you have a great week.